Welcome, welcome back to Becoming Your Best Version, a podcast in which I have the privilege of interviewing inspirational women whose paths have crossed mine. And Philippa Hughes is one of these really interesting, really multifaceted, really dynamic, inspiring women. And we met in a very odd way, which I'm sure we'll get to during the course of this conversation. Philippa Hughes is a social sculptor and a creative strategist who designs relational spaces for honest conversations across political, social, and cultural differences. She has produced hundreds of creative activations since 2007 for people who might not normally meet to engage with one another in unconventional and meaningful ways. These relational experiences build social capital, social cohesion, and social discourse. Her practice encompasses a multidisciplinary approach informed by sociology, psychology, philosophy, political science, history, community organizing, design thinking, creative placemaking, art, and humanities. Philippa, who has been published many times and spoken on multiple platforms, speaks on how to have better conversations and about using creative placemaking and innovative Inter interventions and happenings to strengthen communities and to increase dialogue between people who might not normally interact. She also speaks about personal transformation that comes from curiosity and discomfort. Check out her website, philippahughes.com, and also another website she runs, curiositynext.us, for more information. Welcome, Philippa. Hi, thank you. Philippa was just having a sabbatical in Paris and uh, now is in her art-filled home that uh, I can see. I wish you could see because it is really quite stunning. So tell us about your trip to Paris. It was amazing. Um, I went because I wanted to write a book and I decided I was going to follow in the footsteps of the great American writers, James Baldwin, Ernest Hemingway. Um, because they seem to have been very productive and creative there, and I would be productive and creative myself um, if I sat in a cafe in Paris and wrote some wrote a book. And so, did that uh, work? That was, <laughs> well, yes, no. Um, I, I was very I, creative and productive, yes, um, but I also had like a little bit of a wrench thrown into my process right at the very beginning that kind of it, it took me a long time to work through that <laughs> um, before I could get back to the actual writing of the book. Um, but what better place to be in than Paris to work through a serious wrench being thrown into your process? <laughs> Do you want to talk about the wrench or is it personal? <laughs> um, I, I could talk about it on a high level. Um, I'm, okay. I'm still sort of processing it emotionally. Okay. So, but the writing you know, writing can be very therapeutic. So oh, yes. I, yeah, as we know. So, you know, I, just being able to write, um, the, my whole job for the Latin, for that three month period was just to write. And so I do think I like, you know, gave myself therapy basically um, through this process. Um, but anyway, okay. So yeah, what, what, so what I had gone, I had intended to go to Paris to write about a project I was working on called Looking for America. I'd been working on that for a couple of years leading up to the pandemic and you know into the pandemic a little bit. 
um, I was curating art shows around the country and asking artists, what does it mean to be American? And then organizing large dinners with people from across the political spectrum to engage with the art and then talk to each other about what does it mean to be American? Wow. And it was, you know, so it was so great. And so I started thinking about what does it mean to be to, to me? And um, <laughs> Happy is very Sorry about that. Um, so I decided I'm going to write this book and weave in my own, you know, my, my personal narrative. And then two days before I um, went to Paris, I had been doing all this research about, you know, who am I as an American? Um, you know, my, I had a Scotch Irish father, a Vietnamese mother, and, you know, that like played out in many different ways in terms of my, my, my development and growth as a human. Anyway, so then two days before I went to Paris, I found out he wasn't my father. <laughs> and so that kind of led me on this whole other path of like, oh, wow. And the person who was my father was very much not Scotch Irish. And so it just led me on this whole other path of like, wow, who am I actually, as, you know, not only as a human, you know, but as, a, as an American, as an American abroad at that point. And anyway, so it really changed yeah. the trajectory of, of the book. First, what was, what is your biological father's ethnicity? Do you, do you know? He's Lithuanian Jew. Wow. Well, yeah. we have a lot in common on a lot of levels. And one of them is that I also had a DNA discovery uh, that my father who raised me is not my biological father. And that this person who was raised Catholic, Maria Olson, is half Ashkenazi Jew. So yeah. we both have that in common. And we both, our mothers are both Asian. And I personally have never met an Asian Jew. Have you? <laughs> oh, I've never met one. Um, certainly, you know, like certainly a practicing one. I mean, clearly we are Asian Jews now, yeah. but you no, know, we don't like, I, we're not, I don't think you're culturally Jewish. No. And a lot of what being Jewish is, but I, I found a YouTube series made by these um, kids, I call them kids, they're um, recent Berkeley graduates who did a whole YouTube series on being Asian Jews. Really? Oh yes. my gosh. I'm going to um, look for I'll, that. Yeah, I'll send it to you. I can't remember what it's called right this second, um, but they're just like these little 10 minute videos and it's amazing. Everything they say, I'm like, oh my goodness. I totally get what you're talking about. Well, certainly the ones who discovered it later or whatever, some of them grew up being Jewish and you know, being told you don't look Jewish. Mm -hmm. I, anyway, it's so great. Oh, I'm <laughs> glad to have that resource. Thank you, because yeah. you're right. I don't feel culturally Jewish at all. I went to Catholic schools my whole life, including college. Hmm. And um, I am just, as an adult learning about Judaism, I. When I got the results, I actually arranged a trip to Israel to oh. learn more about um, about the homeland of my father. <laughs> but um, I still viewed everything from a Christian lens, having been so steeped in Catholicism for my life that um, I don't know if I'll ever truly feel Jewish, but I definitely want to learn the customs and as much as I can about Judaism. 
Yeah, that's how I feel. I'm I'm not about to, you know, convert or whatever, become Jewish. Maybe I will, but like right now, you know, I'm it's just too much for me to like process. You know? Right, right. Um, but yeah, but I am intellectually curious um, about it for sure. Absolutely. And my biological father is not a practicing Jew. So mm-hmm. that also makes it less um, compelling for me to make any significant changes to my life in that regard. Well, that's interesting too, because, you know, cause so you know him and he's alive, whereas my biological father is dead. And so there's really, there, you know, there really is no compelling reason to kind of discover more about that at this point. Um, it's not like he's trying to, you know, push, push that or something. <laughs> right. Have you met any though extended relatives, families of your biological dad? Yeah. Um, there's four half siblings and I've met two in person now. And then one, I, the third one I met in zoom. And then the fourth one I've never met. Wow. They're very nice. Really super. Oh, one, the one is uh, actually, they all, you know, they're Americans, but um, one of them married an Israeli. And so she actually lives in Israel. Ah. And she, yeah. So she's the most Jewish, I guess, in that, you know, religious sense. Um, yes. She's, She's been bugging me like, you've got to come here. I'm like, I know I will. You know? <laughs> well, gosh, I encourage you to go. It's a fascinating country while talk about polarized, polarized and you bring oh, yeah. polarized groups and individuals together. I don't know if you can do anything to bridge the severe problems in Israel, but I bet you could make some, some progress. <laughs> Yeah, at least have a conversation. Yeah, you know it's funny because I have been to Israel and it's it is an awesome, like such an interesting place. But obviously, I you know at the time I wasn't looking at it through. I was looking at it through a much different lens. <laughs> so it'll be interesting mm-hmm. to go back and see see everything from this new perspective. Oh yes, absolutely. So I love the title that I don't know who gave you, but I love it. Called social sculptor, and you you curate people in conversation. Like how does one do that? Uh, I wouldn't need, I don't know. I guess I would know where to start, but I'd love to hear what your process is in choosing who to assemble for the richest conversations. Yeah. You know, um, I, I did, I, I stole, I borrowed the term social sculptor from an artist um, mm. named Joseph Boyce. He was um, a German guy who was working mostly in the 60s and 70s, and he would create, his sculptures were these creations um, in which he would make spaces for for human interaction, And and the sculptures could not be completed until like human interactions actually occurred. And then he added another element to that later, in which he said that those human interactions, you know, had to, had to be the basis for relationships and the basis for changing society for the better. And so I really, you know, there's so many elements to that that I love. I mean, of course, the conversations and the interactions, but like, what is the point of that? Unless there is action that evolves from that, that actually makes a difference in the world. And so anyway, so that's why when I read that, I was like, oh yeah, I want to be a social sculptor. (laughs) Yes. And you're very good at it. I mean, I've done a lot of reading about you and the events that you have curated and it's just so inspiring and wonderful. And I'm so glad that our paths have crossed and you also um, make art uh, a 
big part of your life. Talk about how you became so involved in the art world and what art has done in your life and work. Um, well, you know, you mentioned that I'm in this sort of art filled space. I mean, mm. you know, it is really important to me that my physical environment, as much as my emotional and um, social environment are just filled with art. Like I do think it matters what you surround yourself with, not just in terms of people, but in the place as well. Yes. So, so true. You know, in yeah. fact, I have a friend who's a muralist in DC. She did the famous love sculpture. Oh, Lisa Marie. Yeah, yeah. And she told me that the yeah, she told me that the police in informed her that crime went down in the environs surrounding her mural. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't hadn't heard her say that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, there actually is science around that color scheme um, affecting your brain. Oh. Um, I, I, I'll have to dig up that. I read that like years ago about that, that kind of the specific color gradation can actually change your brain, um, change yeah. your behavior. I, you know, scientifically speaking, it's not just anecdotal. Um, but, you know, going back to the role of art, you know, I, 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 I didn't actually answer your, the second part of your earlier question, which was, you know, how do I do it, you know, in terms of social sculpture, but it does relate to the role of art. Um, like I've often told people that, you know, I do collect art, you know, there's yes. lots of objects that hanging around and standing, you know, sculptures, but I, I think what I've really become is like a collector of people. Um, and so I have, you know, I'm just constantly gathering people of all sorts and ages and differences, not just, you know, not just the usual kinds of differences of, you know, racial and, and sex differences, but like uh, economic differences, education levels. And so I think that because I have like, I don't want to call it a network because that sounds too corporate but just this vast social, I have an actual real life social network, not just uh -huh. an online social network. Yes, you do. <laughs> That's why I'm able to curate these conversations in a way that is, you know, more interesting, I think, than the usual, you know, sort of Washington dinner party, because you will literally be sitting next to somebody you have never, like you would never have met otherwise. Yeah. Um, have a conversation and hear a perspective that you would have never normally heard. And the thing is, it's, this is not a, you know, a criticism of those kinds of dinners where, you know, those typical kinds of dinners, it's just that that's human nature is to, you're drawn to people who kind of think like yourself and look like you, like that's just human nature. And I get that. But, you know, I think we'll, we, we can become better people if we push ourselves a little bit and make sort of incremental steps to talk to people who just literally don't act and think like us. Yeah, that is so true. And I remember watching a compelling documentary in which a young trans woman went door to door talking about civil rights for everyone, including trans individuals. And she spoke to someone who had never met a trans person. And after that conversation, the person was changed. Because if we don't ever talk to people different than we are, 
we might not grow in certain directions. So I completely applaud what you're doing and hope when the pandemic eases that I can be part of one of your incredible events. Oh yeah, I mean, I hope you can too. Um, you know, that video that you're describing, it's part of this whole process called deep canvassing. Yes. And it's a real model for the work that we're doing. Like it's about, it's teaching people about how to have like real conversations. I think a lot of people think they're really good at conversations um, because they're talking a lot. And, you know, obviously saying a lot of words doesn't make a good conversation. Like yeah. it, it, and it's not just, you know, talking and listening, like it's, it's, it's the actual content of like what you are actually asking for and what you are actually sharing, you know, whether this is a deeper, more vulnerable conversation, or does it just stay on the surface of the talking points? Like you can like talk back and forth your talking points all day long. That gets you nowhere. You know, yeah. it's when you start digging deep into, you know, your, you know, what you actually believe deep in your soul, that's when we're going to start having real conversations. Oh my gosh, that is so true. So true. For much of my life, I think I listened with an ear to what my response was going to be oh. rather than listening to truly understand what another person is communicating. Yeah, that's like that's like the first rule of good conversation is listen without thinking about what you're going to how you're going to respond. That is like that's the first thing I tell people when they, you know, when I talk about what I learned about having good conversations. Yeah. And practicing the pause before responding has changed my life. Oh my goodness. Absolutely changed my life. As has asking myself if what I need to be said needs to be said, because mm. many times it doesn't, especially with my adult children who no longer really want my advice. So <laughs> So I have to keep my mouth shut and I don't like it, but it is out of respect for them that I do that. But, you know, um, but on that point in general, you know, a lot of times we're saying things that we want to say, not that, that aren't necessarily relevant to the conversation. I just, you know, like, it's not just with, I like a lot of my niece and nephew don't want my opinion on a lot of things either. So I'm okay with that. But just, I don't know, I'm just thinking about like how we, we often just, you know, like it's like, you know, a lot of times in media training, they tell you, don't answer the question they asked, answer the question that you wish they had asked. And, you know, if you can bring it back around, but so you, like, I've noticed that that's happened to me where I'm asking a question and the answer is completely irrelevant to the thing I just asked. <laughs> Oh yeah, I've been there. I've been there. Sure. Um, I was once giving a, a talk at a bookstore about my book and someone stood up and said, I knew you in law school and I actually didn't like you at all. And I was like, oh, okay, well, do you have a question? And she's like, no. Oh, my <laughs> Her, she went on to make the point that from the outside, it looks like it looked like I had a charmed life and that she ultimately did like me better after finding out about my significant traumas. <laughs> but it, it was wow, a wow moment for me. <laughs> so I know that you are a woman with a lot of wisdom. And for this podcast, my favorite question is what do you do to become your best version I think 
think I'm going to riff off of your earlier question about art and, you know, what makes good art and like the collecting of people. Um, I, 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 got, I was just thinking about this commencement speech that Steve Jobs gave, I don't know, 15 years ago or so at Stanford. And he said that, you know, you, it's really hard to see how these, how dots are going to connect up in life to get you to, to a certain point in your life. Like you can only see how the dots connect by going back, by looking backwards. And you're like, oh yeah, it all made sense. But you know, like you're just graduating from college and you're like, oh, I don't know where my life is going. Uh. And, you know, just, so I guess his point was like the dots are going to connect. You just won't be able to see it until later. And so my corollary to Steve Jobs' advice is that well, along the way, you should just throw out a lot of dots. And that's sort of like kind of akin to why I not, you know, why I like collect all these people. Those, all those people are all my dots. And I don't know how they're going to connect up um, at some point in the future, but they always do. And every gig I've ever gotten is because some dots connected in a way that I couldn't have predicted. Um, every, every good thing that's ever happened to me in my life is because of. I can trace it back to some dot I made like 20 years ago that found its way into my life two decades later, like every time. Wow, I love that. And I love this wide net that you cast. I was looking just before we got online at our mutual friends on LinkedIn and they are people from many walks of life and many parts of my life that don't connect. So I love, love what you're doing. And you are someone who brings a lot of light to our community and to the world. And I am honored to have met you. We met, as I didn't fully explain earlier, through someone I was interviewing for my next book, which is about the Pandora's box of DNA test kits. And she said that you had an interesting story and indeed you do. But beyond that, I hope that we will have many opportunities for collaboration because you are a true light in the world and just sparkle with creativity and wisdom and wit. And I'm just so excited to know you. So thank you for being on our show and uh, keep on keeping on. Thank you. It's really great to see you. Bye.